what weight do you assign to the effects on climate change, which some people believe uh, is a matter of civilizational survival. Some people believe it? Justice Alito? How are you still on the high court? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me... From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us today on the Bradcast. We will be joined very momentarily by the great Mark Joseph Stern to get caught up on a whole lot of judicial and Supreme Court-related news that uh, has been getting understandably somewhat lost beneath the unspeakable atrocities we've all been witnessing out of Ukraine over the past week or two. So uh, just very quickly there before we get to Mark, we at least start get to start today with with maybe a bit of what suffices for good ish news in the uh, Russia Ukraine war. I'll take it. Whatever it is, whatever it is. A uh, theoretically positive development coming out of the second round of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine on Thursday. The head of the Russian delegation told Russian media that the two sides have agreed on humanitarian corridors for civilians. What the uh, spokesperson said was that the two sides agreed on a, quote, possible temporary ceasefire. In certain areas that would allow civilians to safely evacuate uh, evacuate the country and allow for food and medical supplies to be brought in to the country. A Ukrainian official who attended the talks uh, on Thursday said, quote, regrettably, we haven't reached results we were hoping for, but emphasized the importance of the humanitarian corridors saying that many cities have been besieged by the Russian troops and are experiencing a dramatic shortage of food and medicines. The establishment of safe corridors was the Ukrainians' main demand heading into their second round of negotiations in Belarus. 
Ukraine's presidential advisor to the talk said that Russia and Ukraine will quickly set the necessary channels of communications and logistics to organize those safe corridors and added that a third round of talks will be held shortly in the, quote, nearest future. That, according to a member of the Russian team. The second round of talks lasted about two and a half hours. Meanwhile, more than four million refugees may end up fleeing Ukraine due to Russia's ongoing invasion, the U.N. said on Thursday. On Wednesday, the U.N. said one million people have already fled since Russia began invading last week, an exodus with speed that is without precedent in this century. The U.N. says that while the scale and scope of displacement is not yet clear, we do expect that more than 10 million people may flee their homes if violence continues. Syria, whose civil war erupted in 2011, remains the country with the largest refugee outflows, nearly 5.7 million people, according to U.N. figures. But even at the swiftest rate, a flight out of that country in early 2013, it took at least three months for one million refugees to leave Syria. In Ukraine, it took just one week. In what I will also put into the goodish news category today, given what we have to work with, according to AP, the Pentagon has established a channel of direct communication with the Russian Ministry of Defense to avoid unintended conflict related to the war in Ukraine. That sounds like a good idea. A U.S. defense official said the, uh, quote, deconfliction line was established March 1, quote, for the purpose of preventing miscalculation, military incidents, and escalation. The official spoke to AP on condition of anonymity because that communication line has not yet been officially announced. The International Criminal Court, which investigates war crimes and genocide, meanwhile, has said it would launch an investigation following Russia's invasion. As France warned, following French President uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron's not so, quote, not so friendly call with Vladimir Putin on Thursday that, quote, the worst is yet to come in the conflict. Russia has finally captured its first major city in Kherson on the Black Sea near Crimea and is said to be laying siege at this hour to the key Ukrainian city of Mariupol nearby. Ukraine's President Zelensky has pleaded for more international assistance and called on NATO to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. But of course, if they did, it would put NATO forces directly into military conflict with Russians, as a no-fly zone requires, you know, shooting down planes that fly into that zone. In fact, Russian planes that violate it, and it includes bombing anti-aircraft weapons belonging to Russia on the ground. So, no, despite the calls that you may be hearing from some for a no-fly zone, that is not a good way, that is not a safe way for us to stay out of the conflict, it's a way to uh, bring NATO directly into a world war with Russia. And in related news somewhat closer to home, I'm actually surprised, uh, delighted here, but surprised that there weren't more than three. 
But on Wednesday, the U.S. House voted on a non-binding resolution in support of Ukraine, which, quote, demands an immediate ceasefire and the full withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukrainian territory and, quote, supports unequivocally Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It also backs sanctions against Russia, defense assistance to Ukraine, promises aid to refugees, supports the right of Russians to protest, reaffirms the U.S. commitment to NATO and highlights the importance of energy independence for both the U.S. and Europe. The measure was supported on Wednesday by a huge bipartisan vote. 426 members of Congress voted for this resolution. Just three members of the U.S. House, all Republicans, voted against a, uh, a resolution in support of the Ukrainian people and Ukraine's territorial integrity. Those three are Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona, Congressman Tom Massey of Kentucky, Congressman Matt Rosendale of Montana. They were the only nay votes on House Resolution 956 titled Supporting the People of Ukraine, which ends by stating the House, quote, stands steadfastly, staunchly, proudly and fervently behind the Ukrainian people in their fight against the authoritarian Putin regime. Gosar tweeted, God be with the people of Ukraine, but subsequently blamed both President Joe Biden and NATO for Russia's war in the country. Gosar, who has come under scrutiny for his ties to white national groups, nationalist groups, was censured by the House last year after sharing an edited video on Twitter showing him slashing President Joe Biden and killing Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Massey of Kentucky, was one of three House Republicans, along with Congressman Andrew Clyde of Georgia and Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, to vote against the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act on Tuesday. He tweeted at a critic last week, If you want to fight communists in Eastern Europe, head on over. I'm worried about the abandonment of our constitutional republic and troubling shift toward communism and autocracy here. Well, yeah, me too, Congressman, at least the autocracy part that your party and disgraced former president seem to favor. Rosendale, for his part, said in a statement last week that the U.S., quote, has no legal or moral obligation to come to the aid of either side. He said in talking to folks across Montana, they are much more concerned with stopping the invasion taking place in our country by millions of illegal aliens than they are the invasion of an Eastern European country halfway across the world. Both Rosendale and Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina have introduced legislation limiting the U.S. from providing material aid to Ukraine until more resources are put towards U.S. border security. Rosendale tweeted on Monday, the American people are sick and tired of career politicians consistently putting the interests of foreign nations above our own. We must put America first, he said. Guess he can't figure out how Russia threatening the use of nuclear weapons and potentially invading the rest of Europe, drawing U.S. forces into World War III is in any way in the interest of the U.S. Okie doke then. With that out of the way for now, Desi Doyen, yep. is Mark standing by? He is. Very good. On to our guest today and to some slightly 
brighter news that we haven't been able to get to until now, thanks to Russia. Way back on January 26, which now seems forever ago, when Justice Stephen Breyer announced that he would finally be retiring at the end of the current Supreme Court term this summer, Slate.com's Mark Joseph Stern, who we quoted on this show that day, wrote in his first paragraph of coverage, quote, The 83-year-old justice has served for more than 27 years, voting often, though not always, with the court's liberal bloc. His announcement gives the White House ample time to, se- to select his successor, likely Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and affords the Senate months to confirm her. Well, look who nailed it. Which is why we always turn to our friend Mark Joseph Stern on all things SCOTUS-related. Joining us now to talk about Judge Jackson's nomination to the court as the nation's first black woman to serve on the highest court in the land, and to discuss much, much more, I hope, that we're going to try to get caught up with somehow, including including a SCOTUS hearing that flew way below the radar uh, this this week with Russia's war on Ukraine understandably sucking up the bulk of the news oxygen. In any event, joining us now is Mark Joseph Stern, who writes about the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, LGBTQ issues, and much more, all expertly at Slate.com. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back, my friend. So happy to be here. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And I really like that you highlighted a positive prediction I made that came true. Most of my predictions are so bleak. I hate it when I'm right, but this one I'm very pleased. Yeah, you're almost always right. And this one is something to uh, celebrate, I guess. Uh, Before we get to the EPA and, and other wars on the U.S. administrative state, being waged by the federal judiciary. Uh, you, you Obviously, you put uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson at the very top of who you believe that Biden was going to nominate on the very first day that Breyer uh, announced his retirement. Why did you think she would be named? Was that wishful hoping? And otherwise, what's your top-line thoughts uh, otherwise on Judge Jackson as the next nominee to the high court? You know, I really think that she has been at the top of the list for Democrats for a long time. Hmm. And I I believe that even in 2016, when Obama nominated Merrick Garland, unfortunately, he considered KBJ. Um, She is so brilliant. She is so talented and such a warm, friendly person. And I think that, you know, she has proven not only that she has the intellectual firepower to get this position, but also she has the politicking skills mm. to make the right connections, to say the right things at the right time, to keep a low profile when necessary. And so it just felt for years like she was on the glide path to this position. When Biden said he was going to pick a black woman, um, you know, it just felt like piece, the pieces clicked into place. Mm. And so uh, as soon as this news came down the pike, I figured it's got to be KBJ. I'm sure that there are a few others on the list. But at the end of the day, she is the home run pick. Mm. And Biden knows enough about judicial nominations not to mess this up. Well, the, uh, you certainly nailed it. Uh, he didn't mess it up. At least we'll see if he did or, or, or didn't as this moves forward. But the court will still consist of what I've, I've long referred to, as you know, as the stolen and packed 6-3 to three right-wing majority, even after uh, KPJ is on it. So how will the court change 
with her on it as she's replacing the liberal Stephen Breyer. So we'll still end up with a stolen and packed six to three right wing majority for now. Uh, What do you see as actually changing on the court? Obviously, not a ton. Unfortunately, the court will still be sharply divided six to three. And even in those few instances when the chief justice swings toward the center, um, he won't have another vote most of the time to uh, join with the liberals and uphold a little bit of sanity. Um, So we won't see an immediate shift in outcomes, but I think that we will see a more emboldened and active liberal wing, Mm. um, a liberal wing that is ready to directly take on the conservatives without feigning some kind of need to to enact or or, uh, act out civility, uh, politeness, collegiality, all of that stuff that I think the liberal justices, especially Breyer, sometimes use to justify pulling their punches. Um, I don't think that Ketanji Brown-Jackson will be quite as conciliatory as Breyer has often been. I think she will be um, better and sharper when asking questions. I think she will be a uh, stronger voice for justice. Uh, even and especially in dissent. I think she will team up with Justice Sotomayor um, to really kind of lay into the conservative bloc when necessary. Mm. And all of that is, to me, important, even if it doesn't change outcomes. It shows um, the rest of the country that there is a kind of liberal jurisprudence that still exists. We're not all uh, chained to whatever Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch tell us. Um, and that there is still a hope that one day the Supreme Court's liberal wing can gain a majority. And when it does, it'll have a game plan and it won't shrink from its duty to restore some of the law that we're currently getting watch, having to watch getting chopped away. This, uh, this may be uh, way out of, well, left field, if that's the way to put it. But is there any chance, you know, you will have now all three appointees to the high court uh, women. So uh, three women on on the left there, only one other woman on the court, uh, obviously. And is there any chance, (laughs) is there any chance that those three women joining with the fourth on the right might be able to change the something about that uh, uh, fourth uh, justice who is on the right? Am I really reaching there? So you're asking whether Katanji Brown-Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan might exercise some influence over Amy Coney Barrett and bring her toward the center? I am skeptical. I am very skeptical. Uh, Barrett has shown herself to be a hard-line conservative and not much of a compromiser, although she does have a keener political sense than, say, Sam Alito, and knows when to not go all out on, say, the administrative state uh-huh. um, or, so, or, you know, some other really controversial issues. But, you know, the example I always use here is the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is the uh, the, the highest proportion of women uh, on, on any state Supreme Court. They're in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Six women and one man. And three of the six women are absolutely insane. They are bonkers. They are lawless. They are open, brazen partisans. And even though the man is conservative, he is by far the most reasonable and at least radical of the conservative bloc. So I don't think we can use gender 
as a proxy for judicial ideology or partisanship. Uh, certainly not anymore. Um, and Barrett is likely to continue uh, her crusade for all of these conservative causes, no matter how much influence or pressure the other three women try to exert over her. Which is, you know, kind of remarkable, especially when you're dealing with issues that are so important to women. And here you'll have three women who will be able to make this case to the other, the one other woman on the court and say, Amy, come on, man, what are you doing? <laughs> I, you know, but maybe I'm just dreaming. Uh, do, you, do you see, uh, before we move on to uh, the next case in our lightning round today, Mark, uh, do you see any potential roadblocks to uh, KPJ's nomination? And, and, and by the way, what happens if it's a 50-50? Has a, has a vice president ever been used to break a tie on a nomination to the high court? Are there any constitutional concerns that could be exploited uh, to that end by Republicans here? I don't see any real roadblocks, uh, any cause for legitimate concern. Republicans have made it very obvious that they don't have a real case against Katanji Brown-Jackson. Um, they have tried to link her to these far-left dark money groups, but they don't have a leg to stand on there because they created the dark money machine mm -hmm. for judicial confirmations. Um, they've tried to attack her for being a public defender, but you know that's so egregiously anti-constitutional. She uh, uh, vindicated the Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights of her clients. I think that's noble work and certainly not grounds for criticism. Most of it may boil down to the idea that she's an affirmative action pick, and I would like to believe that won't play well with the American mm. people, um, to say, oh, well, you were just chosen because you're a black woman, so you don't deserve this seat. Mm. I think she will make it onto the court, and I don't think it'll be a 50-50 vote. I think she'll get a few Republicans, but if she is uh, just facing an equally divided Senate, then yes, the vice president can vote to uh, get her over the finish line. Um, in fact, that had not really been done before Trump started putting these super controversial judges on the lower courts, mm -hmm. and he and his Senate set the precedent oh. that the vice president can break a tie oh. for judicial confirmation. Good. So with that precedent set, no one should be complaining about KBJ if it happens here. Good. I knew that the uh, the Republican Congress did something good under uh, Trump. That was it. The, under Bush, they extended daylight savings time, which starts <laughs> next week, which I know you're excited about, as I am. So we found something that uh, Trump's uh, Congress did we can celebrate. All right. Well, the uh, and, and you mentioned dark money. I want to get to that because uh, I think it plays in here big time. Uh, the Supreme Court on Monday heard arguments in West Virginia versus EPA, where red states and coal companies are asking the court to dramatically limit the agency's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Now, this is actually, at least to me, a really bizarre case because, as I understand it, in 2016, after the Obama administration promulgated the Clean Power Plan, fossil fuel interests obtained uh, a, a ruling by five Republican justices uh, on the Supreme Court that prevented that plan, the Clean Power Plan, from ever taking effect. After that, the Trump administration officially rescinded the Obama Clean Power Plan, issued its own replacement rule with almost no effect on carbon emissions. And then in 2021, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals subsequently vacated the Trump rule, the Trump slash industry rule, because he worked very closely with the, uh, the fossil fuel industry to create it. And now, even though there is no EPA rule in effect in this regard, 
The court's Republicans, Supreme Courts, took up this case that was languishing that could allow them to block the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases altogether. You know, legal experts were stunned that the court even took up this case. The Biden administration had asked the court to wait because they are making their own replacement rule for all of this that will also probably be challenged in court. The court didn't listen. They took up the case anyway on Monday. A is, is well, first, is that the proper background for all of this? Yeah, you got it. Um, the, the weird thing about this case is that there is simply no regulation for the justices to evaluate. Uh, normally, you'd have some kind of rule in place uh, that the justices would give a thumbs up or thumbs down to. But here, there is literally no current EPA rule limiting carbon emissions at existing coal-fired power plants. Zero. Uh, it is just a hypothetical future rule that the Biden administration may or may not issue. And the Supreme Court is going to sort of preemptively decide whether it gets to do so, which sounds a lot to me like an advisory opinion, which I had understood the Supreme mm. Court is not allowed to issue. So why did they take up this case? I mean, wh- what did we learn from Monday's oral argument about the case itself? And I mean, what what's the reason for even taking up this case? They, you know, they took months. They wouldn't even... Talk about, a, 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 you know, a case out of Texas that just banned abortions. This one was a case that was languishing and they pulled it up out of nowhere uh, regarding a rule that doesn't exist. W- what's going on here? This is a preemptive strike against whatever Biden decides to do with his EPA regarding these power plants, these horribly polluting power plants, which are a direct threat to both the planet and to human health and safety. Um, You know, I think the conservatives realized they could sit back and await this rule and then let that play out through the courts and then eventually decide whether to issue an injunction. Um, But that's what they did last time. And they were, I think, kind of afraid that it got so close to actually taking effect. You know, Scalia died just four days after providing that fifth vote to walk the clean power plant. That's right. It's the last official action he ever took. And so I can imagine that you have some conservatives uh, right now saying, we don't know what the court will look like in a year. We don't know what's going to happen down the road. Let's act now to sort of uh, just proactively rewrite the Clean Air Act (laughs) to prevent any real carbon regulations. And then we don't have to worry about what comes next because we will have already handcuffed Biden to this really cramped reading of the law. Is there any other uh, situation where that that this sort of thing has happened, where they sort of preemptively take this? I'm, I'm thinking actually back to Citizens United, where the court sort of, you know, told them, hey, come back and argue this before us. Uh, uh, is this an unusual situation for the court? I mean, this is in some ways even worse than Citizens United, because what happened in Citizens United was the the plaintiffs had challenged this narrow provision of a federal law, the McCain-Feingold law, mm-hmm. and then the Supreme Court said, come back and challenge more of it. Right. You know, we don't want to just strike down this one part. We want to strike down this entire chapter. Um, but here, you know, there's not even a threat right now of enforcement against the power plant companies. Like, mm-hmm. Citizens United had a legitimate concern that it would be punished for distributing um, this, this 
this film, this mm-hmm. uh, attack ad on Hillary Clinton, basically. But here, the coal companies, the power plants, they don't have to worry right now. There is no rule in effect. They can pollute all they want. And so it, it is especially bizarre and possibly unprecedented for the justices to reach out and grab this issue uh-huh. before there's a live concern. Um, this is the fossil fuel industry just, just kind of flexing its muscle, showing that it has the court in its pocket and mm. it should concern all of us, not just on the merits, but about how the court went about getting this case before their crosshairs. Yeah, I'm going to ask about that in a minute. Uh, but just on the case itself, on the hearing on Monday... And, and what could be the potential ramifications here. Uh, I know that there was an argument that, you know, nobody is being harmed. This case should not be decided at all right now. But it does seem like the court is obviously trying to weaken environmental protections and the EPA's ability to, uh, to, to regulate such things. But this decision could certainly ripple into all kinds of other things. I think last time you were on, we talked about the uh, the uh, the Biden vaccine mandate that uh, OSHA was putting into place that the Supreme Court cut down. Could a ruling here in this case ripple into all sorts of other aspects of the executive branch ability to regulate things that Congress has uh, told them to regulate? Yes, absolutely. And this is uh, another case that involves the so-called major questions doctrine, uh, which does not exist in the Constitution, which is a judge-made rule that um, essentially agencies like the EPA, like OSHA, cannot interpret an existing statute to answer or address a major question that Congress has not addressed yet. So for OSHA, the question was a vaccine mandate. Um, you know, the law gave OSHA really broad powers, but didn't use the word vaccine. So the court said, too bad, Congress has to do this. And here, um, the question is regulation of carbon, specifically um, the sweeping regulation of carbon that would entail not just cleaning up individual factories, but enacting generation shifting, cap and trade programs, all of the rules that I know you are very familiar with that would limit overall net carbon rather than just clean up one or two plants. And so the theory that the conservative justices are pushing that the fossil fuel industry wants is basically if the EPA wants to do anything major here, if it wants to encourage or compel states to engage in a real across-the-board restriction on carbon emissions, then Congress has to pass a new law. Um, And and whatever you think about that, I just want to be clear that it is an anti-textualist position Mm -hmm. because Congress already passed a law. It passed a Mm -hmm. number of laws, actually, Mm -hmm. that give the EPA a really broad authority um, to say we get to decide how to reduce emissions, mm-hmm. we get to work with states to figure out what programs to implement, and our experts are the ones who determine this. Um, the, the text of the law on the books right now fits very comfortably with what Obama's EPA tried to do and with what I think Biden's EPA would try to do. Um, I mean, if anything, Trump's rule violated the text of the law because it didn't do enough. Um, and, and I am worried that this will be a case where the Supreme Court further hobbles the executive branch's mm-hmm. ability to just apply existing law 
under its plain text to solve the problems of the day, and instead says, well, every time there's a new problem and we decide it's a major one, Congress has to go back and pass a new law. Even if the laws it's passed are perfectly good and perfectly capable of addressing this, we insist that Congress do it all over again because we don't like regulation. And and, and who did this major questions doctrine that doesn't exist in the Constitution, who decides what is a major question? Can anything I disagree with please be a major question? Uh, um, I would love if that were true, um, and I think that uh, you would be a much better expositor of the major questions doctrine <laughs> than any any conservative justice. Uh, the problem is, of course, that it's totally subjective. There's no parameters. There's no guidelines. And this case is a good illustration because the, the, the fossil fuel industry's lawyers keep saying that the EPA wants to restructure the American energy grid and the American economy. That's what makes it a major question. But that, that is just not really true. Like, what the EPA wanted to do here was use a combination of regulations and market incentives to shift power plants away from coal toward greener energy mm-hmm. and to uh, enforce new technologies like carbon scrubbers to the greatest extent possible. That is not a restructuring of the American uh, mm-hmm. economy. And the proof is in the pudding because it turns out that a lot of this stuff that Obama wanted in the Clean Power Plan, it's been adopted by the industry anyway because it turns out to be pretty cost effective. And it didn't end up costing anywhere near what the, the coal companies said it would mm-hmm. back in 2015 when they challenged this rule. It was much cheaper and easier and faster. So the major questions doctrine gives five justices on the Supreme Court veto power over Mm. regulations when they just project what they think a rule may or may not do. And they are often going to be wrong. And so we shouldn't pretend like they have any expertise here or like this is a legitimate exercise of judicial power. Yeah, I mean, it actually reminds me of the Purcell principle, which they use to stop, you know, changes to election laws if they are too close to an election. Problem is... There's no definition of what is too close to an election, as we saw when they, uh, you know, threw out uh, this case down in Alabama, this gerrymandering case, which is so clear, so obvious. So it was so, uh, you know, well heard before the court, well decided and 250 page uh, decision. They decided, well, you know what? We can't implement that because it comes too close to an election. So we're going to have to use unlawful, illegal uh, gerrymandered maps in the 2022 election in Alabama, just because that's what they do. The EPA has the broad authority to protect public health, just as OSHA has the authority to protect worker health. And this out of control judiciary just keeps, seems to me anyway, getting in the way. Uh, This activist right wing judiciary uh, is is legislating from the bench. Uh, Mark, uh, (laughs) I want to talk about uh, dark money you mentioned, and I think many people understand the use of dark money to, you know, to fund election campaigns for the Senate, the House, governor's races and so forth. But the use of dark money campaigns for the judiciary, I believe, is much less understood. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, in addition to being on a years long campaign to alert the nation about the dangers of the climate crisis has also been trying to expose the connection between that and dark money on the court. In a statement this week concerning this case, West Virginia versus EPA, he said this trumped up challenge is one prong of a massive anonymously funded influence campaign by the fossil fuel industry. 
is that how you see it? And can and can you speak a bit on how dark money affects issues and appointments and so forth to the judiciary to help Republicans pack the court? Since I think that's less known than how you know dark money is used in election campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, first off, you know, the the challenge to this non-existent EPA rule is largely funded by dark money through various pseudo nonprofit organizations that pretend to be charities but are actually litigation factories for corporations, um, through state attorneys general's offices, which can uh, draw on a lot of this dark money to fund their own lawyers and lawyering. Um, and the dark money ends up getting pushed through various channels mm-hmm. to directly support the confirmation of conservative judges. You know, we saw for, for really the first time huge PR campaigns mm-hmm. to push through Trump's justices and lower court judges. And we are now seeing PR campaigns by dark money groups to attack Ketanji Brown-Jackson and to attack Biden's judges and to attack the senators who vote for them. And so th- there's an entire kind of in dark money industry um, that we don't know who they are. We don't know where this money is coming from. We don't know a lot about it, but they are working every side of this fight. Mm-hmm. They are funding the lawyers who are bringing these cases, and they are funding the judges who are deciding them, and they are funding the senators who are confirming them, and, and the presidents who are picking them. Mm-hmm. So none of this is happening in, in the open. We don't know who has all of this control over the system, but it is very concerning, and I think especially concerning that we're seeing the courts getting flooded with these amicus briefs that the justices mm-hmm. often take seriously that are also funded by dark money. The, um, uh... And groups will put forth all kinds of nonsense statistics and just flagrant lies in these briefs and there's never any accountability um, and the court just accepts it at face value so it's, and I think that's a huge problem. So it's dark money hiding behind these uh, lofty sounding legal organizations that are uh, giving their uh, opinions to the court and it's actually dark money back there and by the way I would argue uh, it wasn't just uh, PR campaigns for, uh, for Trump's justices. We can go back to at least uh, uh, Clarence Thomas and millions of dollars that were spent to support his nomination way back when, back in the 90s, by a little-known group at the time by the name of Citizens United, (laughs) actually spent millions to push uh, Clarence Thomas onto the bench. Well, there you go. It all comes together, and guess what? Clarence Thomas is still sitting on the bench, and his wife, Ginny Thomas, is propped up by a huge dark money network and actively working with litigants who appeared directly before him on the Supreme Court. Yep. Not problematic at all. All right, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, let me take a quick break here. I want to come back with a lightning round of a bunch of uh, uh, court issues in recent days that I want to ask you about. Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. He'll stay with us for one more segment. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Yes, it is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter from Slate.com. 
lightning round here because there's a few more uh, things I want to get in as quickly as we can in the time I have left. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court last week turned away a challenge to Maine's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for health workers, rebuffing for a second time a group of plaintiffs who sought a religious ex- exemption there. So that's actually good news as I see it from the court. But honestly, Uh, This comes just weeks after the court blocked the Biden administration from mandating vaccines for federal workers and contractors. And that one may have had a, a religious exemption. I'm not sure. But I'm having trouble finding any coherency at all in the court's various rulings on various mandates and the religious stands uh, that they take on other things. Uh, Can you maybe help me understand any of this any better? Uh, Probably not, because there's not a lot of rhyme or sense or sensibility to it. Uh, What I can tell you is that, as a rule, the court's going to be more skeptical of federal vaccine mandates than state vaccine mandates. Some of the conservative justices seem to think that states have broader leeway than the federal government. Based on what? Well, based on this idea that the states have a kind of inherent power to protect health and safety that the government doesn't. And this is something Sotomayor addressed during oral arguments in the OSHA case, and conservatives really attacked her for it. But, of course, she was right. I mean, we have long believed, and the Supreme Court has long held, that the federal government actually does have the power to protect health and safety that has any kind of connection to cost which, of course, uh, vaccines and sickness do. Um, but this is the idea that Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts seem attached to. And so because they control the Supreme Court now, we will keep seeing these lopsided outcomes where the court's much more likely to uphold uh, a state mandate than mm. a federal mandate, which means we won't have mandates in places like Texas or Florida. We will have them in places like Maine and New York. Okay, well, maybe that's good news then for this next story, Mark. As AP reports, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a new clash involving religion and the rights of LGBTQ people in the case of a Colorado web designer who says her religious beliefs prevent her from offering wedding website designs to gay couples. The Supreme Court said in taking the case that it would look at the free speech issue to decide whether a law that requires an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. That, uh, after uh, the state of Colorado has argued that she is violating state law, which... As we all know, that reigns supreme for this Supreme Court. So so what's going on here? LOL, if only. So, <laughs> you know, this is a very different case in the eyes of the conservatives um, because they have long wanted to uh, attack civil rights laws and specifically LGBTQ non-discrimination laws and legalize discrimination on the grounds that uh, it constitutes free speech under the First Amendment. And this case is the perfect test case. And it is a test case, to be clear. The individual in this case who runs a website, she has never had a same-sex couple ask her to make one. And in fact, she doesn't make marriage-related websites at all. So she says she is worried that in the future she might start making marriage websites and a gay couple might ask her to make one for them and she might be forced to turn them away and then get sued. None of that has happened yet. It is a pure test case. Um, But the whole idea here is to enshrine a new principle that when a business is engaged in, you know, selling goods or services that involve speech, 
that they get to discriminate against at least LGBTQ people, if not a broader class. Yeah. We'll see where the court draws the line, but it's very worrying. Well, and it is worrying because it seems like it, it, it comes down to whether LGBTQ plus people are actually a protected class because, I mean, she would certainly not be able to make the same argument about being unwilling to create a website for a black straight couple uh, being married for religious reasons, right? That's, uh, well, uh, yes and no. I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine, because the problem here is that uh, we just don't know how radical the court's going to be. And there's a chance that they could say LGBTQ people don't deserve legal protections, but black people do, or interracial couples do, or women do, as long as they're straight. Or the court could paint with a really broad brush and say that all kinds of discrimination have to yield um, to freedom of speech, and that even an interracial couple doesn't have a right to equal access to the marketplace. And so it's a perverse situation where the least bad option would probably relegate LGBTQ people to second-class status, and the broader, worse option would strip away everybody's rights in public accommodations um, and essentially undermine the legal foundation of the Civil Rights Act and every non-discrimination law in this country. The uh, Colorado law in question here, uh, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, is the same one at issue in the case of this stupid case of Colorado baker Jack Phillips. That was decided back in 2018 by the U.S. Supreme Court in Phillips's favor at the time. So why might the outcome here be any different uh, than it was for the, the cake baker, the wedding cake baker Jack Phillips back uh, four years ago? So in that case, the court really kind of punted on a technicality. The court found that this civil rights commissioner had said offensive things about Christians, and so it violated the free exercise clause. I think that's totally wrong, but it didn't decide whether there was a broader free speech right to discriminate. Um, that's because Anthony Kennedy was on the court, and there were still four liberals. Now, of course, Brett Kavanaugh has replaced him, and there are only three mm. liberals which means that the, the conservative bloc can finally achieve this lifelong goal of creating a First Amendment exception to non-discrimination laws. That's the only real difference between those two cases. Fantastic. Finally, Mark Joseph Stern, you write this week in one hell of a lead, I gotta say, uh, quote, on Monday, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a stunning decision transferring control of the Navy's special operations forces from the commander-in-chief to a single federal judge in Texas. The Fifth Circuit's decision marks an astonishing infringement of President Joe Biden's constitutional authority over the nation's armed forces, directing him to follow the instructions of an unelected judge rather than his own admirals in deploying Navy SEALs. High-ranking military personnel have testified under oath that this power grab constitutes a direct threat to the Navy, Navy's operational abilities. As Russia invades Ukraine and declares a nuclear alert, Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's judges are actively threatening America's national security. As I said, one hell of a lead, one hell of an accusation, Mr. Stern. Do explain, please. I can't get over this decision, uh, because to describe it is, uh, I think, to almost sound hysterical, but uh, you can go read it and, and, and see that I am telling the truth here. This judge, Reed O'Connor, said that the Navy's vaccine mandate violates religious liberty, 
and ordered the Navy to exempt the 35 SEALs in his court from this mandate. He's going to very soon broaden that out to about 4,000 other service members, by the way. Keep an eye out for that. Uh Um, Right now it's just 35, but they are high-ranking SEALs. They are uh, operational forces who are currently, you know, in a very difficult situation because, um, the, of course, the, the U.S. is preparing for the possibility of armed conflict in Europe, mm-hmm. um, and they want to be out in the field. They want to be fighting. They want to be deployed. And the Navy said, okay, well, if you're not going to get vaccinated, uh, we can't deploy you because you might be in a submarine, you might be in a ship, mm-hmm. you might be in incredibly tight quarters for days or weeks or months, mm-hmm. and if you have COVID, you could spread it to other people. You could cause an outbreak. Some of these guys serve uh, together multiple unvaccinated people in the same submarine in Europe. Not a great idea. And so the judge, upon hearing this, said, I am going to take control of these missions. I am going to seize oversight of these missions. And I am going to sanction the government and hold government lawyers in contempt if the Navy does not immediately deploy these SEALs wherever they want to go uh, without regard to their vaccination status, because anything less will be a violation of religious freedom. This is just an amazing story, and we will link over to it, uh, because he's actually, this one judge is actually, you know, following the deployment of all of these people to make sure they're not being, you know, deployed to a desk job or something, that they actually are you know, endangering the rest of the people they serve with, essentially. This is one lone judge. You write, he continues to oversee the plaintiff's assignment, forcing the Navy to train, equip, and and deploy unvaccinated troops. From where does this one judge get this power, and why is he not stopped somewhere on an emergency basis at the Supreme Court or elsewhere? I mean, even the military was against this, correct? No, no, no. Of course the military was against this. The, 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 the military admirals and captains filed declarations saying that this is a catastrophe, that it undermines military readiness, that it undermines the chain of command, that it is already breeding uh, disobedience within the ranks, that it is putting uh, active uh, duty troops in harm's way. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to matter because the Fifth Circuit and a panel of two Trump judges and one crazy Reagan judge upheld this order and allowed O'Connor to continue to oversee these deployments. And like I said, he is on the brink of certifying an entire class of 4,000 people, exponentially increasing the scope of this decision. So he doesn't have this power. It's totally lawless. But the Fifth Circuit didn't stop him. And unless SCOTUS steps in, this is going to go on indefinitely. We are going to see one judge acting as the commander-in-chief. This is insane. Uh, But of course, that's why you need to read Mark Joseph Stern, because these cases do not always see the light of day until it's uh, far too late, actually, to do do anything about them. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern, you can find his work at Slate.com. You can and should find him on the Twitters uh, for early tip-offs to all of this and to whoever the next Supreme Court justice nominee might be. He is MJS underscore DC there. Uh, He, of course, covers the law, the court, Supreme Court, everything else at Slate.com. Mark, brother... Uh, thank you, my friend, for uh, helping us make sense of all of this. I sort of look forward to doing it again in the near future. 
always a pleasure. Sorry the news is so bad. Thank you, brother. Okay, uh, <laughs> now, Des. Yeah. Desi Doyens, your turn for the Yay. bad news. That's straight ahead <laughs> on the broadcast with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, when you think about it, what kind of jerk gives you just six minutes uh, to report? Uh, it's always a lightning round that you have to come up this with. This is true. There's a lot to talk about and very little time to talk about it. little time to talk about the most important existential uh, issues uh, of, uh, in the world. Anyway, I guess I'm that kind of jerk, <laughs> as we'll discover in our latest Green News Report. We're done talking about infrastructure weeks. We're now talking about an infrastructure decade. Biden touts infrastructure and clean energy in State of the Union address. Majority of Americans willing to shoulder higher gas prices to help Ukraine. Plus, another big oil giant pulls out of Russia. Are they American? Yes. Well, God bless America. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and... Snarky comment. Germany shutting down the pipeline led former Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev to tweet about the high-priced natural gas they'll now face. Welcome to the new world where Europeans would soon have to pay 2,000 euros per 1,000 cubic meters. Whoa! That is a lot! Or a little! <laughs> the metric system means nothing to me! <laughs> Ditto! This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the tragic, terrible, awful uh, impacts of what we're seeing in Ukraine are bad enough. Add to that now the economic impacts around the world. Yes, indeed. Although it may ultimately hit Russia the hardest, its oil and gas industry is getting pummeled. Oil giant ExxonMobil announced that it is joining Shell, BP and other oil majors in announcing it will exit its role in a major Russian oil and gas project and cease any new investments in the country following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, that took long enough for Exxon. Yep. And Norway's one trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund, the world's largest, will also also divest its Russian assets. Ouch, that's going to leave a mark. And the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is now dead. The Russian-owned operator declared bankruptcy and let go all of its employees. Sad. Here in the U.S., the Biden administration says it will tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to ease gasoline prices. Lawmakers from both parties are pushing the White House to ban imports of Russian oil. But industry analysts say it may be unnecessary because Russia's oil exports are 
already taking a major hit from the oil company's exit. Also sad. A new Reuters poll found a majority of Americans, nearly 60 percent, said that paying more for fuel and gas because of the crisis in Ukraine was worthwhile to defend another democratic country. That's up 10 points from last week. So nearly 60. The other 40 are just, uh, they want cheaper gas, no matter how many people have to die for it. Russia's war on Ukraine was a major focus of President Biden's wide-ranging State of the Union address on Tuesday, but he spoke only briefly on climate change and environmental justice. It was a missed opportunity to inform Americans about the necessity of swift climate action in the wake of a new U.N. report this week that climate impacts are more severe than expected and governments are running out of time to adapt to worse effects to come. Biden instead touted the infrastructure law, the largest infrastructure investment in U.S. history and the jobs that come with it. We're done talking about infrastructure weeks. We're now talking about an infrastructure decade. It's going to transform America. Biden didn't mention the Build Back Better Act that was sabotaged by Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Instead, he touted executive actions he's taken to rebuild domestic manufacturing and a flood of new projects from the infrastructure law. We'll create good jobs for millions of Americans, modernizing roads, airports, ports, waterways all across America. And we'll do it to withstand the devastating effects of climate change and promote environmental justice. We'll build a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. Begin to replace the poisonous lead pipes so every child, every American has clean water to drink at home and at school. Biden also called on Congress to pass elements of the stalled or dead Build Back Better Act with investments that would boost the economy and lower long-term inflation and costs for working families. I call it building a better America. Let's cut energy costs for families, an average of $500 a year by combating climate change. Let's provide an investment tax credit to weatherize your home and your business, to be energy efficient and get a tax credit for it. Double America's clean energy production in solar, wind, and so much more. Lower the price of electric vehicles, saving another $80 a month that you're not going to have to pay at the pump. Folks... Surprisingly, Biden didn't mention that last week the Interior Department's first offshore wind lease sale shattered records for offshore energy development. Mm. It was the nation's highest grossing offshore energy lease sale in history of all types of energy, including oil and gas. (laughs) The New York and New Jersey region is setting up to be a wind energy manufacturing hub, showing how a clean energy and climate agenda can boost domestic manufacturing and create jobs while tackling climate change. Nice. Very nice indeed. You got to give credit to Joe Biden. He's still trying. And of course, Joe Manchin is still going to be blocking him. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We were young and strong. We were running remember when we were young and strong. <laughs> Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our yeah. producer. Thanks to my guest today, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. Thanks to all of you 
for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, or just want to hear it again or share it with your friends and family, you can always download it for free at bradblog.com. We are on your public airwaves. Thanks only to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate and help us do what we do day after day right here on the Bradcast. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. It's the